0: If you have not seen, somewhere you have uh, notes uh, uh, nearby, I hope, um, this is just to kind of give you uh, general guidance of what we're doing. I don't, I don't plan on going word by word, and if you decide to turn it over and just take notes on the back or just kind of sit and absorb, I'm happy either way. Um, that's, um, again, just there for your help and uh, not, not to burden you in any way. You know, as I listened to uh, Ben, I thought, it, it, um, it may just be helpful to tell you why I enjoy uh, talking about the things that we will talk about over the next few hours, which I think, for those of you who are exploring, how might the Lord use us to disciple other people? in whatever church or setting how you know is is that something the lord might be calling me to think about or do i mean in essence you're saying i i would like to understand how to explain and apply god's word to people's lives and and we'll be talking about that but in a very particular way it's explaining and applying god's word in light of the gospel itself not not just saying Here's stuff for you to know. You know, it'd be nice if you knew more stuff. But rather, if people are to grow in their love for Christ because of his love for them, how does that affect the way we look at the Bible, the way that we explain it to people, and the way that we apply it to their lives? Because that's really what discipleship is doing. What does God's word say? Why is that significant in your life? So a lot of what I do in um, uh, preaching and teaching and and uh, doing conferences in different places is I start out usually by trying to say, please don't follow me. <laughs> please don't do what I did. And uh, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. So when I when I graduated from a seminary, uh, I had a I had a great privilege. So you know, young guy just graduated. And I was asked to be the senior pastor of the oldest and the largest church of our region uh, from, from my uh, denomination. So right out of school, oldest and largest church. And uh, how do I say this to you? Uh, I thought I was hot stuff. I, I, mean, I mean, look at me. Young guy, big church, historic church, ain't I something. And I had no idea how hard it was going to be. And it wasn't just because I was out of my depth and too young for the responsibility, but also because of what began to happen in that church and to that region. So that that church was in southern Illinois. And uh, the main um, industries there were agriculture and mining. But soon after I arrived in that large and historic church, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, changed the standards for coal that could be marketed in the United States. And what that meant was southern Illinois, soft, high sulfur coal could not be marketed anymore in the United States. And what that meant was the mines began to close one after another, after another. Within about a year or two of my arrival at that historic and large church, there were quite literally thousands, tens of thousands of people out of work in that region. A government safety net to kind of help, but not adequate. Not just for previous salary, but for previous self-respect. I mean, you're thinking about helping lead the church, but I think you can already imagine, if jobs and income are falling off a cliff very rapidly, what kind of dynamics are going on inside people's homes? If jobs and income are going like that, what dynamics are rising very rapidly in people's homes? You can talk what will happen. If jobs and income are going away, what begins to happen inside people's homes? Marriage stresses of all kinds. What else? addiction. People will medicate any way they can, any way they can. So that means alcohol, drugs, promiscuity, adultery. I just want to feel good about something. And, and beyond that, depression. I mean, everywhere. Now, I mean, not, not just particular people, not just the people. I mean, I'm talking about entire communities, just like a blanket has been put over us of darkness. And um, people in the church hurting just as much as anybody else, and not just people in the church, officers in the church. You know, adultery, addictions, abuse, depression. Now, because I had been to seminary, I knew exactly what to do in this situation. (laughs) I thought I knew what to do. I mean, you're supposed to preach the Bible. And so I would stand up and I would say to people who were struggling with addiction or abuse or depression, I I would say these wonderfully pastoral words, I would say to them, stop it. Now just stop it. It says right here in the Bible, you shall not be drunk on much wine. So just stop it. And, And if you have trouble in your marriage, well, stop it. I mean, the Bible says right here, you shall love your wife as Christ loved the church. You may not hit her. Stop it. And if you're depressed, well, just stop it. I mean, stop being depressed. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what the Bible says. In fact, I'll say it again. Rejoice always in the Lord. Just stop being depressed. I said, stop it so often, I could not stand me anymore. I said to my wife one day, Kathy, I did not go to seminary to learn to hurt people, but I stand in the pulpit every Sunday, and I hurt people, and I can't do this anymore. And we really did make that call to my wife's parents, and saying, we may be coming to live with you because I don't know what I'm going to do for a living anymore, but it is not this. Now, it was kind of at that low point of my own depression and sense of failure that the Lord brought into my life the writings of a man. His name was Sidney Gradonis. And he began to say, what is the Bible really about? I mean, yeah, I know there's all those you know, moral stories about good people and all that. But what's the Bible really about? And he began to look at, curiously, a controversy in the Dutch church a century earlier. Now you think, how is this going to be helpful? We're struggling with depression and addiction and abuse, and we're going to look at controversies in the Dutch. But here's what he said. The controversy was, how do you preach the heroes of the Bible? Now, you know, that's pretty plain. We all know how to preach the heroes of the Bible, You know, remember David? I mean, you know, David, man of faith. So what happens? Even when he's a boy, he goes up against Goliath. You know, picks up the five smooth stones, puts them in his pocket as he goes to face Goliath, and Goliath says, Am I a dog that you come against me with a sling? And David says, You come with sword, javelin, and spear. I come in the name of the Lord. And, of course, we all know how to talk about that, right? You should just be like David. You know, you can fight the Goliath in your life. If you just have enough faith, just be like David. Except for that chapter about Bathsheba. And how he murdered her husband to have her. And then he raised bad kids. And then at the end of his life, he numbered his troops as though he were responsible for his kingdom's glory rather than the grace of God. Well, maybe you shouldn't just be like David. What Sidney Gradanus did was he kind of very methodically went through all the heroes of the Bible, not just telling kind of the sanitized Sunday school version, but the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He went through the heroes of the Bible and he came to one very simple conclusion. There's only one hero and everybody else needs him. And if we don't understand that, we will get the stories wrong. We will begin to tell people, you just need to be good. You just need to be as good as so-and-so. And yet that has never been the Bible's purpose to just tell people the answer to your problem is, you just need to be good, or at least better than those people over there. That is not the story that is unfolding. If you will, what is the actual story that is unfolding if the Bible is not just telling hero stories of people that we're supposed to be like, yet you know when you think of kind of the big picture, In the Bible, I mean, what is the the large, large story that is unfolding? So, you might just want to put this in your notes or on a separate piece of paper because I'll refer to it a number of times. But what's what's the larger story of the Bible? Not just the individual stories of David and Gideon and all those. I mean, what's the big story that's unfolding? It's this. You know that first God created all things, and when He did. He made them all good. Did they stay good? No. Very quickly, there was a fall in which everything (laughs) went bad. Now, we know the other end of the story, right? We sometimes refer to that as the consummation of all things, when ultimately what God will do, the book of Revelation of the new heavens and the new earth and all that, is ultimately God will make everything perfect, which, by the way, is even better than good. I mean, that's, that's the future. But what happens in the meantime? What's happening from everything goes bad to everything is made perfect? Well, that's the period... Of redemption. God is redeeming everything. And he told us that he was going to do that and how he would do it from the very beginning. Right after everything went bad, do you remember that there's this strange conversation, really declaration from God, as God speaks to Satan having tempted Adam and Eve. And in Genesis, I'm gonna make this smaller so you can see it. In Genesis... Three fifteen, Genesis 3.15, there is what Bible scholars call the first gospel, the first prophecy in all the Bible. And in that first gospel, God says, what is his solution to the fall, to everything going bad? He speaks to Satan and he says, I'm going to put enmity, that is antagonism, Between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to strike his heel, Satan, but what's he going to do? Crush your head. What God is doing from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, is he's telling us the story that will unfold in the rest of the Bible that God is going to have to provide a redeemer. And Satan, knowing what he's going to do, Satan, the serpent, is going to strike his heel. But what is the seed of the woman going to do? Crush his head. And we know that in the crucifixion where Jesus took our sin and in the resurrection where he rose in victory over it, that he is crushing the influence of Satan in this world. And everything that's unfolding from Genesis three fifteen forward is God saying th- th- this simple truth. You are not your redeemer. You are not your redeemer. I will have to send him. Which means the person in focus, as all the scriptures are unfolding is who? Who's the person in focus? It's the one true hero. It is Jesus. Now I'm not saying and I'm not going to tell you every verse in the Bible mentions Jesus. It does not. But if we do not understand that all the Bible is pointing toward, eliminating other heroes, telling us that is you are not your redeemer but there is one that is coming. If, if we don't understand that that is the story that's unfolding, we will get individual passages wrong. We'll misunderstand why they're there. I mean, just on this biblical timeline, just imagine we're, you know, we're back here somewhere you know, in the period of the judges. And one of the judges that we all know about was named Samson. Remember that? Right? All right, now, now everybody knows the story of Samson, right? So, you know, when he had long hair he was strong and when he had short hair he was weak therefore you should have <laughs> yeah now i did i did a little spying early so andrew stand up yes so obviously there is true holiness before us here Yes, uh, but Rob, stand up, and it's, it's apparent that somebody is almost in need of church discipline over here. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, now, you know that's wrong, but why is it wrong? I mean, the Bible's supposed to give us examples, and here are examples. Samson was an example, you know, and, and we just know you're supposed to be like the people in the Bible, and, and do what they did and not do what they weren't supposed to do. And, and, and that's, that's, but that gets the story all wrong. And, and we should know why it gets the story. Samson was one of the judges during the period of the judges. Now, those of you who have some Bible background, you, you remember now, during the time of the judges, there's a verse that says, everybody did what was right in... Their own eye. Everybody did what was right in their own eye. How'd that work out for them? Not so good. good. That, That does not work. And you know what? It does not matter how clever you are if you can untwist riddles the way that Samson could. And it does not matter how strong you are. Even if you are as strong as Samson, you are not your redeemer. Without the provision of God, no matter how smart, how clever, how strong, how mighty you are, you are not your redeemer. And that message is what's unfolding as God is saying, there has to be another. And the scriptures are pointing that way. And if we will tell the whole truth, not just the Sunday school version that 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 lets little children smile and try to be like somebody in the Bible. If we'll tell the whole truth, we will recognize that nobody is being focused upon as the answer to the human condition other than Christ Himself. So if you look at your note here, that 's here, Bible's theme, and we don't usually think of it that way, is Genesis 315. I know we tend to think it's John 316, and that's okay. <laughs> But, but really, the Bible is setting the agenda for everything that follows right here. In Hey, you're, you're in Bible school right now. Do you know what this is called? this called the Proto-Evangelium. <laughs> the first gospel, right? The first gospel is right there as God is promising a Redeemer for those who will not have a Redeemer. And, and we don't have to guess that that is the story that unfolds. If you go on the other side of the cross, just, just a few days... There's that wonderful story about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that? Luke 24. And for reasons we don't quite understand, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, meets with disciples and they're walking to Emmaus, a little town, and, and they don't recognize Jesus. But Luke tells us about the conversation. And here's what Luke tells us. He says that Jesus, look at this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets revealed what was said in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, again, I don't think Jesus is saying, every verse mentions me. You know, you and I have heard preaching like that, right? You know, you know the ark was made of wood. And the cross was made of wood. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew's excited now. This is going to be a good seminar. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and oh, and by the way, it wasn't just wood. It was gopher wood. And gophers live in the ground. And Jesus came up. Uh, <laughs> so the ark is not really about the crucifixion. It's actually about the resurrection. And, no, that's not what we're going to do, right? That's, that's kind of imaginative. I can make the Bible say whatever I want it to say as long as my... Ma- that's not what we're talking about. We are talking about God is unfolding his grace. Here's I I have to provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. And As you move forward in biblical history, that grace like light toward the dawn... Is getting brighter and clearer the further you go. In part because it's showing us our greater and greater inadequacy, right? Instead, it keeps saying, You got heaven. You're not your redeemer. You're not your redeemer. You're not your redeemer. This is not just about how you fix your problem, this is how God has to fix it. Now, after I read Cindy Grananas kind of explaining this, I, I feel embarrassed even now to tell you, it changed the way I preach instead of saying, you should just be better persons, straighten up, fly right, and stop doing wrong stuff, I began to say, you know what, folks? The message of the Bible appears to be that if God could use people as messed up as those in the Bible, maybe there's still hope for you. And I watched light go back into people's eyes. And for those of you who are thinking about how you disciple others, I I was in a church that was at that point about 175 years old, had never sent one person to ministry, never sent one family onto the mission field. But as we began to think, no, there's still hope. God can still use. You may have had all kinds of hardship and trouble and failure, but God still has purpose and love for you. And, and we began to send one young man after another after another to become ministers, go to Bible college, His families began to go to the mission field. It had never happened before, but hope began to change people. And it wasn't just the people in the church that were changed by that hope. Who else needed to know that even if you had messed up, God might still have a plan for you? Who else needed to know that? I did. I was not even out of my 20s. And I believed I was a failure and had this huge responsibility that I had failed in and needed to find another profession. And what the Lord did was he said, no, if I could use people like David, maybe there's hope for you. Now, every one of you, if you don't hear another word I say today, that's what I want you to recognize is really going on in the Bible. God is not just expressing Doctrine and duty. Here's stuff for you to know, and here's stuff for you to do, which is how most of us open the Bible the way we were trained from when we first began. Here's what I'm supposed to tell you. Here's what you're supposed to know, and here's what you're supposed to do. And you may know a little bit, but you're supposed to know more. And you may be doing a little good, but you need to do more. So more doctrine and more duty. But listen to me. If my entire lesson, whether it's a sermon, a counseling session, A a Sunday school class, a small group Bible study, if my entire message is you need to know more and do better, you need to improve your competence, and you need to improve your performance, who is your redeemer? You are. You just just need to do better and know more. There is something else. Who is the person in focus? It is Jesus. Jesus. My teaching is still going to say there's stuff you need to know about God and there's stuff for you to do, but it is in response to what God has done in Christ. Because otherwise, people think, well, you know, I need to know that stuff or do that stuff in order for God to love me. What was the message of Scripture? Even when people had fallen and before they had done anything, what did God say? I love you. I'm preparing a way, I'm preparing an answer. God is providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. That's the message. God is providing for people, and it's kind of the core message underneath it all, which means in your notes there, if you want to take the notes, not only is God the hero of every text, God's the ultimate hero, not Samson, not Gideon. God is the ultimate hero. Jesus is the culminating revelation of God's grace. Tim Keller, some of you like reading or thinking about Tim Keller says that there's always a subtext to the text of Scripture, always a subtext. And he says the subtext is God is coming to the rescue. God is coming to the rescue. And the reason that becomes important is when you begin to study the heroes without that perspective, you will be hugely disappointed. You know, you remember the story of Gideon went up with 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. Now there, you know, there's a great man of God. By the way, anybody remember what he did with the gold that he took from his victory over the Midianites? He made an idol. And we read that all Israel prostituted themselves before the idol that Gideon made. Now they didn't teach you that in Sunday school. (laughs) That would have ruined the story. It would not have ruined the gospel, right? You think, well, if only God had known that Gideon was gonna do that. Well, God did know that Gideon was gonna do that. And he still rescued somebody who didn't deserve it for people who did not deserve it, for people who could not provide for themselves. God provided a victory through broken, sinful people by his grace, not by their qualifications, There is a gospel message of grace that is unfolding if we will learn to see it. How do we know that? Romans 15.4. So you're on this side of the cross in Romans 15.4. And Romans 15.4, much like Luke, when he was having Jesus with him, Romans 15.4 has the apostle Paul say this, everything that was written in the past. Now that is a very broad statement. (laughs) Everything that was written in the past was written for us so that through endurance, through our trials, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Everything that was written in the past was written for us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Is your hope in you? Please say no. Is your hope in your performance? Is your hope in your competence? What's your hope in? When you disciple people, where are you teaching them their hope is? It's in Christ. So what we're going to try to do today is, is kind of think, all right, how do I, how do I look beyond just kind of this bare instruction, you shall not steal, <laughs> and, and actually see how God is saying to people, here's how I've got to provide for you so that people ultimately recognize his grace has already claimed them. His love already is theirs, and they are responding to his grace rather than the depressing idea of, i got to earn it. i got to be holy enough for God to actually help me, love me, take care of me. Instead of saying, you know what? God promised that even while you were his enemy, Christ died for you. There's a grace message that's unfolding if we put on glasses of the gospel to see it. We'll begin to unfold it this way. If not John 3.16, another kind of key verse for us to be thinking about is 2 Timothy 3.16. Can any of you do this? All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, Mm, stuff you're supposed to know, reproof, There's stuff you're not supposed to do, (laughs) correction, there's stuff you ought to be doing, An instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be, here's the hard word in the King James, that the man of God might be perfect. Piece of cake, go ahead, do it. That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the Bible tells us what its purpose is, to make you perfect. Actually, the word perfect may not be the best translation. It's the Greek word artios, which means complete. The Bible is given to complete us. Now, there is a necessary implication. If the Bible is given to complete us, what does that say about us? We are, we are incomplete. We got holes in us. That means when you look at people, you ought to see Swiss cheese, right? They got holes in them. The question for us who are discipling other people is, what are you going to tell them fills the holes? What makes them complete? Well, you just need to know more than other people. You just need to do better than you were doing last week. You've heard those messages. Be a better father than you were. Isn't that depressing? <laughs> you, you, you just need to straighten up. You just need to have a longer quiet time. Or go to a darker closet. <laughs> That'll fix it. No, if you could fill up the holes with your competence or your performance, who would be your redeemer? You would, but the Bible's message is you are not your redeemer. So we have to look at the scriptures and say, if I'm looking at people and I see Swiss cheese, what is going to fill up the holes? What's going to make people right? It's not their performance. It is God's performance for them. It is God's provision ultimately for them. The way we can begin to think about this, and I know this has preaching implications, but I've only got so many seminars I can do, so you get, the <laughs> just, just say teaching or discipleship, it becomes the same thing. Some implications for preaching is that what we are doing whenever we are trying to say people, well, here's what this Bible text means, here's what this passage means, here's what this chapter means, is we're not doing all that we should until we address what you see here as, The fallen, condition, focus, right? From here forward, after the fall, everything until the consummation is in a fallen world, which means when the Bible is addressing things, talking about things, it's saying, we're dealing with people who think if they're strong enough or clever enough, that's gonna be their hope, their solution, their answer. Or we're gonna think if we just get out of this flood, then everything's going to go fine. Did it work that way? Soon after he got out of the boat, what did Noah do? He got drunk. What did his kids do? They had incest with him. If only God had known that was going to happen he might have God did know. What is the message? You are not your redeemer. You are not the solution. For people like us and worse, God had grace that was necessary to save his people. So when we look at the scriptures, we are saying not only what we're tempted to do, what's here? What are you supposed to do? That's what we always do, right? Duty and doctrine. What's this? What are you supposed to know? What are you supposed to do? If if that's not the message, if that's not what's gonna fill up the hole, you just doing better, then then what is the message? We are learning this fallen condition of the mutual human condition we share with either the author or the audience or the character of the text that requires the grace of God. What helps us so much when you're learning to teach the Bible to people is learning just to ask the why question before you teach other people. Not just what's here, due to your doctrine. Why is it here? Why is this here? Why did the Holy Spirit tell us about strong, clever people not being able to rescue others or themselves? Why did God tell us that? Anybody you know ever depend upon their own wisdom, strength, income? Yeah, those are us. (laughs) We are those people. If we begin to look at any passage of Scripture, and and, and we're not just thinking, all right, what am I supposed to teach people to do, which is our instinct, right? What am I supposed to tell people to do? And instead we say, why is this here? And how are we like the people to whom it was written or about whom it was written? You know where I'm going? It's, It's kind of like, imagine you're kind of Easter time, and you're looking at the story of Thomas. There's usually another adjective we put in front of Thomas's name. What is it? Doubting Thomas. You know, what a terrible disciple. You know, oh, can you imagine it? You know, he had, he had he had the testimony of Jesus, who told him he would rise from the dead. Even as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be. Uh, he had the testimony of the prophets. You know, the oldest book in the Bible, Job, told us about the resurrection. And he had the testimony of the women who said, the grave is empty. And even Peter told Thomas, you know, the chief of the apostles, that, that he's not there. He is risen, as he said. And, and you can imagine that everybody thought, what an awful disciple. Didn't believe. Doubt it. Aren't you glad you're not like Thomas? Is that why Thomas is in the Bible? So that you'll be glad that you're not like Thomas? Why is Thomas in the Bible? Because we are all Thomas, right? No, I, I don't doubt the rest. Really? You know, it's so easy at Easter time and when life is just rolling along fine to to just kind of believe Jesus rose from the dead and, and he conquered Satan on our behalf. And and then our child gets leukemia. And we wonder if any of this is real. Is Jesus really ascended in heaven and interceded? Is this real? And we find ourselves to be a lot like Thomas. Why do we learn about flawed Awful, despairing, weak people in the Bible. Because we struggle like that. We we have a mutual condition with them. Now, of course, when Thomas doubted, Jesus kicked him out of the disciples, said, I'm not gonna be. Is that what happened? What did Jesus do with doubting Thomas? He said, Oh, touch. You know. And he 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 still held him close and still used him. And it was, it was the message of grace that changed a doubter into a faithful disciple. Now, there were things for Thomas to know. He is risen. And to do, tell the world. But it was a consequence of the grace of God that had been on display, not something that he had to do to gain the grace of God. The fallen condition, fallen condition focus. If I look at the text, and instead of just kind of going too fast to, what's here and what should you know? If we'll say, why is this here? How am I like the messed up people? In that? Well, how am I like them? And then you help God's people see that? That is transformative of the way not only you can explain the scriptures, but what people expect to hear from the scriptures, right? They expect you to be burdening them. Here's more for you to do. Here's more for you to know. What if you were lifting the burden? You know what would happen? They would have some joy. And we know something from the book of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is our strength. They would actually have the strength to do what we want them to do if we're explaining the Bible in such a way that say, you know, the people who struggle like I'm struggling, God still loved them, had a plan for them, had hope for them, and that's what we're beginning to teach them. Now, I hope that sounds a little pleasant But it means a lot of the messages that are familiar to us suddenly become, if you will, out of bounds or at least inadequate for messages that really understand the big story of the Bible. So on your notes, after that FCF note, it says here, all scripture is redemptive revelation. All scripture is saying, here's what God must do to solve the human problem. It may be Depending on your own strength, it may be despair. It, it, it may be wrong interpretations of God. It may be idolatry. There's something wrong that God has to fix. And we're looking for what is the wrong thing? Why was this written? Not just what it says. Why was it written to help people understand why it's significant to them? And as a consequence, there are certain messages that get out of bounds for us. You've heard of the, of the killer bees there are things what I call the deadly bees. These are messages that sound very spiritual, and they actually are spiritually deadly. And you'll see when I write, they're very common messages in Bible-believing evangelical churches, and they're actually damaging faith rather than helping it. And and you'll see what I mean by the first one. Um, one form of deadly bee. It spiritually deadly are messages that are entirely be like. We look at some biblical figure, and we say to the people that we are discipling in our small group, "Those were really swell people in the Bible. You should just be like that person." Now. My profession is preaching. And I know in the history of preaching, this, this actually has a name. This is called biographical preaching. You take a biography of somebody in the Bible and you tell people, be like that person. Now, you already are aware that you, you have to be a little careful when you approach the life of David, when you say, be like David. But now Abraham, you know, that, that was a real man of faith. Remember? He, he, went, he went to the land he did not know left his father's home and wealth to obey the call of God. And on that journey, he only gave away his wife twice to other men. (laughs) And then because he did not have patience for the Lord's promise of supplying a son, he slept with his wife's maid and had a son by her. And when of all things, his wife got upset about that he decided to put his sleeping partner and his biological son, his son, in the desert to die of exposure. Abraham tried to murder the woman he slept with as well as his own son. Well, maybe you shouldn't try to be like Abraham either. (laughs) If you'll tell the whole story, you'll learn... You, you have to clean things up to ever tell people to be like someone in the Bible. You have to tell the, not the whole truth, and that's not what the Bible was doing. Now, surely there are good things in the lives of God's people in the Bible. Yes, surely there are good things, but never sufficiently good to earn or maintain the grace of God. Never sufficiently. God must provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. And if we'll tell the whole story, that's what we're beginning to see. You know, when people told about the exploits of David, don't you think the people of Israel knew what David was going to do later? They knew where the story was going. And, and, And if we don't tell the whole story, we're not saying why it's really... Somebody can do really good stuff at one stage of their life and then really mess up. But even when they really mess up, God said to David, I will not abandon you. I will not be faithless. You've been faithless to me. I will not be faithless to you. That, that message is God is maintaining. Now, I will grant you, I will grant you, there are a few people in the Bible that, that, that we don't have a lot of information of the bad stuff that they did. You know, if some of you may, again, great Bible scholars in the room, may remember, you know, in the book of Genesis, we are told about Enoch. Remember the name Enoch. And we have this wonderful truth about Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He, he walked with God, great. And then he just disappeared. And you know, you can't get much dirt in there. I mean, it's just, it's just all it says. He walked with God and he was no more. And Caleb, I don't know that we have any bad things to say about, or Jonathan. Two things. Recognize, number one, these are exceptions. And there's very little said about them. If, if almost anybody whose life is explained in detail has terrible human flaws, why? Because they're human. <laughs> because they're they're fallen creatures in a fallen condition. If you tell the whole story, you'll find out that they are fallen creatures and they need a redeemer because they are not their redeemer. And even if you say you know Jonathan was really good and Caleb, you know that's all the information we have on them. But if you think theologically for a moment. If these were really, really great people, who enabled that? Well, that was the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, too. And my guess is, if you knew all the story of all the days of their lives, you would find out why they needed that grace. There's more message here if we don't get stuck in, be like. Recognize, now I'll say it to you, does the apostle Paul ever use this message? Does the apostle Paul ever say, "Be like me, follow my example." Does the apostle Paul ever say that? Rob is nodding. Yeah. At least 5 times. Now finish the verse. "Follow my example as I follow Christ." There is a redemptive context. That's all we're saying. Not eliminate the facts, tell all the facts. But that means put them in their context, right? We, we, you know, those of us who talk about teaching the Bible say a text without a context is a what? A pretext. You know, context is king. Put things in their context, or you can make the Bible say anything you want. Remind people, but the context is always God has to provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. That's the redemptive context. And so, if I'm going to tell people be like someone, here's what I'm remembering. And I'll probably say this about 20 times before we're done. These messages, be like messages, are not wrong in themselves. They are wrong by themselves. If that's all you say, you know, David was a good guy, you'd be a good guy too. That's not the whole truth, right? Now, in itself, it's not wrong to say, isn't it great to be courageous in what God will provide and go up against giants? Sure, that's a great thing to say. But recognize that was not the whole story. Be like messages are not wrong in themselves. Clearly, the Bible characters are in the Bible to teach us aspects of good behavior, you know, in the good things they do. They're also there necessarily to teach us that is not sufficient to be right with God. If you want to scare Christians scare people in the church, quote Luke 17, 10 to them. So this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, when you have done everything that you should do, you are still an unworthy servant. Wait, wait, wait. I did everything I should do. Yes, but what you do is not what gets you into the kingdom. It is faith in what Christ has done. So if all I'm telling people, you should do, you should do, you should do, you should do, I'm just getting them in deeper water, right? Because I understand that Jesus said, when you have done all that you should do, because our best works are only what to God? Isaiah 64, 6. Our best works are only filthy rags. God, I got some filthy rags for you today. Oh, not enough. Okay, well, how about some more filthy rags? Not enough. Well, how about some more filthy rags? God is not satisfied by our human flawed works. He is providing grace for those who cannot provide for themselves, who put their faith in his provision. There is a redemptive context. And that means another form of deadly bee is also necessary but inadequate, okay? I can't move this so I would get it out of your way, but the next form of deadly bee are messages that are entirely be good. Now, how could that be wrong? Be good. I mean, isn't that what discipleship, small group leaders, are supposed to say? Be good. I mean, you certainly don't want to preach the opposite. <laughs> be bad. <laughs> I mean, what, what's wrong with that? It's not wrong in itself, it's wrong by itself. Uh, R.J. Rushdooney, some of you may know that name, his, his famous book was The Messianic Character of American Education, right? There are people who just thought if you just educate people well enough, that'll fix all the problems in the world. So he talks about the messianic character of American education. And yeah, all those terrible people who believe that. But you know that can kind of creep into the church that, that you are the solution to your problems by education or by goodness. In the in an appendix to that book, Rush Dooney actually has a, um, a section. In t- this is a, this is a strange title. Uh, It's called The Menace of the Sunday School. The Menace of the Sunday School. And here's what he describes. Now, I don't mean to be stepping on any toes or making people feel bad, but we all get it. He talks about the very well-meaning and sincere Sunday school teacher who says, oh, Sally, if you're just a good little girl, Jesus will love you. It sounds sweet, and it is spiritual poison. Jesus will not love Sally because she's a good little girl. Jesus will love Sally as she puts her faith in her only Redeemer, and her redemption is not based on her goodness. It is based on the grace of God. Faith in what Christ provides. But think how common that message is and how easy it is for us to say, you just be good and God will love you for that. It sounds sweet and takes people away from their Redeemer to themselves. I have to fix my problem. I am the solution to my fallenness. I'm the one who fixes my sin. I'll make it up to God, right? I'll go to church three times this week. I'll pray harder. I'll read through the whole Bible. And that'll make it up to... Actually, it won't. You're trusting in your doctrine or duty rather than in a redeemer. You are trying to earn his grace rather than responding to his grace. Messages that are entirely be good only have two possible human responses. Can you imagine if your entire message is be good, if that... You know, that, that's our, our Sunday school lesson this week is be good. Actually, the Bible doesn't just say be good. There is another standard that is required. God says be holy, perfect, because I am holy. That's the real standard. Be ye holy. What's wrong with that message? If your entire message is just be good, or even heavier, be holy. There's only two possible human responses to that message. Only two possible, each of which is deadly spiritually. You be holy. Now, one response is the response of the rich young ruler. Do you remember that? You know, Jesus walking down the road one day, and the rich young ruler drives up in his Lexus, and you know he 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 he, he asks Jesus a question. Now, listen, it's got a landmine in it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question is a little mixed up from the beginning, right? I mean, you don't do anything to inherit, you inherit as a result of what somebody else has done. But the ruler doesn't quite get that. So he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you're not kind of careful, you'll think that Jesus should have stayed in seminary longer to get the right answer because of the answer he gives. Do you remember? Um, You know the commandments, you know, be a good person. Actually, that's not all he says. He asks a question before he answers the question. The virtual ruler says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. And he lists them. And what does the rich young ruler immediately say after the list of the commandments? What does he say? All these I have kept since I was a boy. Now listen, Jesus had just said Only God is good. And what does the rich young ruler say about himself three seconds later? Me too. (laughs) In which case he gives himself the status of God. Which any Jew would know is breaking the very first commandment. He had already broken, just by saying it, he broke the first commandment. Listen, if all you say to people is just be good. In American culture, they, they kind of know, well, I'm not perfect. But what now follows? But I'm not perfect. But I'm better than those people over there. And so it forces the religion of comparison and competition, right? I'm better than I was or better than they are. So God's going to recognize me as sufficient. And what did he say? When you have done all that you should do, you are an unworthy servant. When you have met every requirement, it's only more filthy rags to God. Our humanity, we sinful fallen creatures, touches everything we do and therefore pollutes everything we do. The consequence is a message that is entirely be good has one possible response, which is pride, right? All these, I've gotten good enough, at least better than those people, that's one response. But folks, what is the other more likely response? If I just tell people, actually the requirement is you should be holy. Now one response is, got all the boxes checked, I'm just fine. No, actually the the requirement is you should be holy. Tell me what is the other possible human response. It's not pride. What's the other response? Despair. I'll never measure up. I'll never be okay with God. There is no hope for me. I can't be like those people in the church. You know, they're the holy people. I'm not. And this message that was meant to help people is driving them out of the church, driving them out of your small group, driving them out of hope for themselves. And remember, everything that was written in the past was written for us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There is no hope if my entire message is, you should just be better than you ever could possibly be, that is not going to give people hope.